0: What's up, everybody?
1: Welcome back to the Things You Don't Hear in Church podcast. My name is Ethan. And my name is Derry. And today we have an awesome guest, one I've been excited about for a while. He's a TikToker. His name is t um, he is a part of the Christian Orthodox Church. Um, he converted from Protestantism in 2019. He's an awesome guy. He's got a lovely wife, and he's a happy hedgehog dad. Found that out recently. That's pretty cool. I would love to see that. Actually, I don't think I've ever met anybody that has a hedgehog before, but they look super cute. Yeah,
2: they're they're awesome pets. Uh, the hard to find. Um, and hard, much harder to find vets for. But oh, yeah, uh, yeah I can awesome imagine.
3: Pets and- what's his name? We-
2: uh, so her, her name is Daisy. Uh, nice. She's the second hedgehog we've owned.
0: Nice. Um, oh, fun. So. You ever named him Sonic? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Never. <laughs> That's too, so too classic. How did you get into, like, owning a hedgehog?
2: Um, it, it, they've always been an animal that fascinated me. And one time, uh, one morning, like, after I'd been married for about two years, I, ju- I just woke up and I, was, I said to my wife, I was like, Sarah! what we're adults we have (laughs) money i can buy a hedgehog
1: (laughs) and um i love that dude
2: they're also an ideal pet for like because i'm in graduate school doing seminary Mm. so i've been i'm in moving from apartment Mm. to apartment and Mm. so they're ideal because they're small that you keep them in a cage most of the day and Mm. so uh, i never need to pay or check with landlords or anything like that so what's the maintenance
1: on having a hedgehog like
2: What's the what, sorry?
1: The maintenance. Like, what does it require? Is it oh, a lot of work um, or is it low maintenance? It, de-
2: it depends. I mean, mm. the, you got to clean their cage frequently and mm-hmm. um, trimming toenails can be a mm. problem because they'll curl up into a spiky ball oh, if they yeah. don't want you to touch them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but generally we take her to the vet like three times a year for checkups and it's uh, much cheaper than a dog would be. Mm. And then Mm. you feed them cat food and, um, you just got to watch their weight. Uh, A lot Mm. of the hedgehogs you see online are, uh, really obese. (laughs) So this has been a public service announcement uh, for hedgehog size. Uh, yeah. So
1: it's not just like roaming all over your house all the time. It's in a cage No, usually. no.
2: We, we have some designated areas she's allowed to mm. explore when we take her out. Cool. Um, and then often I'll just like have her on the bed while I'm reading or something like that. Nice. Um, That's so, awesome. Yeah.
1: Cool. All right. Um, well, today, now that we're through the important part of the podcast, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. today we're talking about Christian Orthodoxy and to give a, a little bit of an intro, I think among protestant christians which is most of our audience it's kind of like the catholic church is like the main uh adversary to christianity it's like we're both christians but it's like the it's the one we know the most about i mm-hmm. think at least in circles that i grew up in it was like you knew there was catholics you knew there was christians and then there were those people who lived in russia who are orthodox right right, right. <laughs> and like you just don't know about them really i didn't have any friends who were orthodox um but as i've grown and as i've learned i figured out that's not at all necessarily the case, but just because that's what we kind of know in our popular culture. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we've been trying to do this series of learning actually more about the different faith traditions within Catholicism and now Christian Orthodoxy. And so we'd love if you could talk a little bit about... maybe the history of the church first just so we get like a good foundation of an intro of like where these traditions kind of came from um and we can go back and forth on it too and add different information but um would you want to talk about that a little bit first
2: yeah for sure so to start uh i'm a member of the uh orthodox church of antioch
1: Hmm. um so
2: that's something most people are familiar with Antioch's in the Bible right. and an act right. that says Antioch is where they were first called Christians. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the uh, majority of Christians living in the Middle East today are still Orthodox of some kind uh, mm-hmm. with a minority and actually a majority in Lebanon of Eastern Catholics, which I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll get into later. Yeah. Um, but so the church kind of grows from there and Uh, quickly spreads to Greece. So that's why you hear frequently Greek Orthodoxy. Now, today people hear that and they think Greece, the country. But hmm. really, Greek—what Greek Orthodoxy means—is Greek the language, because hmm. there was in the ancient church the Greek-speaking church and then the Latin-speaking church. Right, right. So I'm a member of the Greek Church of Antioch, and then people say, hmm. "Well, d- d- does anyone in your church speak Greek?" I'm like, "No, a lot of them speak Arabic," but <laughs> <laughs> it's just a historical marker. Yeah. Um, and then from Greece. Missionaries moved north into what is now Bulgaria mm. um, and created actually what's called the Cyrillic alphabet, St. Cyril and Methodius. Mm. So the re- weird Russian letters people think mm. of, right. um, that's Cyrillic. And uh, Orthodoxy spread through the Slavic countries out into Russia. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of how the Orthodox world developed uh, where it is today and um, There's also, I think it's important to recognize um, down in Ethiopia, (laughs) there's the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is also just very ancient and have always kind of been out there doing their own thing. Um, So the Orthodox Church and the what we now refer to as the roman catholic church were Mm -hmm. considered part of one large communion of churches Mm -hmm. until the traditional date given is um 1054 when the uh Mm -hmm. there was a schism over a series of issues and the Mm -hmm. churches over the next couple decades mutually excommunicated one another and then Mm -hmm. that uh excommunication was essentially solidified during the Crusades Mm, mm. um, because the Byzantine Emperor initially calls the Pope and is like, okay, can you send some troops to help me retake my land? Mm -hmm. And what the Pope does instead is call a holy war to the, the, um, the Holy Land in modern day uh, Israel and Palestine Mm. and ends up kicking a lot of Orthodox Christians out of those cities and wow. putting his own bishops in charge. And so that sort of caused the schism to solidify in the minds of most people. And then in the Fourth Crusade, uh Constantinople was sacked by um right a group of
1: crusaders.
2: So yeah,
0: yeah. just a little bit of schisms there. Just a little yeah, bit of just, just a
2: little holy bit. wars.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Um so that's I love kind that it's of, called the Great Schism too. I just wish I, I have a goal, like not a goal. But it'd be, it'd be cool if, in my lifetime, I was a part of something called the Great Something that like people <laughs> just like knew about, like the Great Schism. Yeah. Like be so coolly about it. That yeah. kind of we could so, be in another
0: Great Depression soon. So you might get rich. Indeed.
1: <laughs> oh. Um, maybe a, a
2: third I'll Great War. Uh, God forbid. Oh no! I take it back. But, oh gosh. Uh, Anyway, so the <laughs> oh, no. in terms of how we view our own history, then, the Orthodox Church doesn't really view our church as coming from anywhere other than the church we read about in the Bible. Hmm. Um, okay. w- with Antioch specifically, we have a list of pretty much all the leaders of the Church of Antioch from mm-hmm. Peter uh, when he was first came there from Jerusalem all the way down Mm. to our current leader of our church, uh, John the 10th. Gotcha.
0: And so is that kind of like the same as a Pope? Um, in the sense of of authority and stuff.
2: So not in the sense of authority, the, and we can, Hmm. um, get into this a little more, I guess, but the Orthodox church is governed by bishops, much like the Roman Catholic church or, um, some Anglican churches and Methodist right. churches have bishops, mm-hmm. right. um, but it it's structured a bit differently than what people think of in the um, Roman Catholic Church. So in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is the supreme bishop of the entire church, meaning he okay. has immediate authority everywhere in the Roman Catholic Church and all other bishops are subject to him. Right. In the Eastern Church, it's more of a uh model of synods so uh each church is headed by a uh either a patriarch or an archbishop who serves as the president of the synod or hmm. council of bishops that meets with him and then those bishops might go home and there might be lesser bishops around their hmm. jurisdictions and so it's really a conciliar model of interesting um, church government Hmm. so a Question patriarch is a guy who sits at oh, yeah. the top of that uh hierarchy but I, a big difference between a patriarch and a pope is hmm. there's a patriarch of uh um constantinople still hmm. uh, he's right. called the ecumenical patriarch he's the hmm. figurative head of the whole orthodox communion but he has no authority over me as a member of the church of antioch
3: hmm. okay Right.
2: There, there's, um, it's a series of independent churches all living together in communion. So kind so of like a, a
1: network. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hmm. So when it comes to like, uh, papal succession, right. Where mm-hmm. you have like this line passed down, you guys kind of have that line you can trace back, but you don't have the same authority given to that necessarily That structure. Is that right?
2: Well, so apostolic succession is this idea that bishops now sit in the apostles seat essentially and that is true of all bishops of the orthodox church everywhere Hmm. all bishops are equally successors to peter to the apostles um and because of that they are all brothers and peers
3: Hmm.
2: with one another Now there are precedents of honor and precedents of uh, administrative authority, which is Mm -hmm. to say, someone's gotta be in charge, Mm
4: -hmm.
2: right? Right. Of the details of keeping things uniform, of Mm -hmm. knowing when to move a bishop from one sea or city to another. And Mm -hmm. so generally speaking, those bishops are the bishops of cities that were the most important at a given time and um, have also this sort of precedence of honor. Antioch is an example. Antioch is one of the oldest churches in the world. And so uh, going back to very early church councils, we have basically a list of when Rome is here, he's in charge. When the Roman patriarchs not here, Constantinople's in charge. And when they're not here, Alexandria and Antioch are in charge, Hmm. right? So it's sort of this idea of who's running the meeting (laughs) <laughs> hmm. when we're all together nice. and so um there's a, there's a certain gravit or gravitas uh, there's a, a big weight when a major bishop or patriarch speaks hmm. and weighs in on something but they cannot act um unilaterally in all cases and they can hmm. be deposed by a synod of bishops under them they can be fired
0: hmm. okay and that's cool th- that's a happened before yeah, a lot more accountability, it seems like, than the Catholic Church.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm, I'm I know Catholics wouldn't say that, but I, would, <laughs> I I would I would say that yeah, we have very different approaches to hmm. uh, church government. Um, then it would appear on the surface, right? Because mm-hmm. on the surface, mm-hmm. people see Greek bishops or Russian bishops. They're like, "Oh, they're just Catholic, but they dress differently."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And no, our our theology and our our understanding of how the church is supposed to function is a little different than that.
1: Hmm. Um, so when it comes to, I'm oh, sorry, you can keep going if you're no, no, thought. go ahead.
2: I ask your questions.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. So when it comes to, like, say, really reformed Christians, right? Um, we're mm-hmm. both a little more charismatic. Me and Ethan um but i see a lot of tension between very reformed christians who are all about like sola scriptura um mm-hmm. versus like catholics and they talk all the time on tiktok i love watching the debates but um it'll be like the catholic church will say there's revelation from other places than scripture right and then mm-hmm. the reformed bro would be like no it's only sola scriptura right uh the catholic person would say it's also the church and all these other things um where would the orthodox church land in that kind of a spectrum of things
2: so One thing uh, that frustrates Western Christians about the Orthodox is how frustratingly vague we are about everything (laughs) and how we, uh, we really lean into this concept of mystery. And for us, we don't like to differentiate between scripture and tradition. Hmm. Scripture, uh, we have to, for the sake of these conversations now, but it's not something we like to do. It's because questions are brought to us. And so Hmm. One way I've often heard it put is uh, scripture is like the biggest jewel in the center of the crown or the ring that Mm. is tradition, Mm. right? It is held in place and guarded by that tradition. And that tradition also needs the scripture in order to be valuable. uh, Think of an engagement ring where there's a setting for a diamond, but it's not there. That's tradition without the scriptures. Hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and think of a loose diamond and how you could lose it if you couldn't secure it to that hold um hmm. at that mounting and keep it on your person, so that's kind of the role that tradition plays, hmm. so there's this idea certainly that tradition is important, and that the oral tradition of the apostles, which we believe we've preserved, hmm. is. Um, important because that faith through the grace of the Holy Spirit resides in us and Hmm. illumines the scriptures for us. And that's not just a personal matter of, oh, now I can understand the scriptures because the Holy Spirit dwells in me, but
3: Hmm.
2: we, the church, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And Hmm. that allows us to guard and remember the proper interpretation of Hmm. the scriptures.
1: So that would be like the whole church has the authority to interpret the scriptures, rather than um, just the like, say, the Catholic Church telling you what it believe, like what it says. Oh, they've only done that with like six different verses, but right, is that so, kind of what you're saying?
2: Yeah. So all um, the 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 faith is something that is held in common by all the church. Hmm. Now of that the bishops are the overseers from the greek word uh episkopos in the new testament uh, have a special role in Mm -hmm. that um activity uh, Mm -hmm. i guess you could say in the interpretation and and the authoritative understanding of the faith Mm -hmm. but it is uh the bishops rule with the consent of the people and actually when a bishop is enthroned there's a point where everyone you know at a wedding when it's like speak now or forever hold your mm. peace mm. like there is a opportunity for people to object interesting to um and in weeks leading up to the enthronement so the bishop will be elected but then there will be several weeks in case people want to object and so um and that almost never happens we do mm. we, we do love our bishops in the orthodox church <laughs> um so that yeah, it's something that the church does at a whole. And um, the opinions of non-clergy are definitely considered and it has been recorded of non-clergy members participating in councils, mm. giving their advice. Wow. Um, for us also, we don't have as big an idea of the development of doctrine as a mm-hmm. lot of Western Christian groups do. So what can also make our mode of authority different from the Catholic church is, well, the Catholic church uh, came out in the mid 1800s and said, we're, com- we're proclaiming the Immaculate Conception of Mary, a dogma. Right. You right. have to believe it now. For the Orthodox, the faith was delivered to the saints once and for all. Hmm. So, tradi- And this goes back to your scripture and tradition. Tradition Hmm. is not a justification for new revelation and ongoing Hmm. revelation. Hmm. The faith that was given was to the apostles by Hmm. Christ in that, especially that um, 40 days before he ascends to heaven, where he explains all the scriptures concerning himself. Hmm. That faith is complete and sufficient. And so the tradition um guards uh, uh the, the tradition is handed down it guards the interpretations of the scriptures but it is also complete hmm. if there's a development in doctrine we say there is a development in vocabulary hmm. in uh analogy in how we define things like the trinity Hmm. We be, for So from the moment Christ, you know, delivers that faith to the apostles, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we don't coin the word or Trinity until later, it, right. the doctrine gets defended later. Mm-hmm. But in substance, it's there.
1: Right. So... So that totally makes sense. The change in vocabulary change is not necessarily the doctrine that's like totally changing. Right, and it's also,
2: you don't know what's wrong until someone says it. It's this idea Mm. that Mm -hmm. we really only define things after a heresy gets invented. And Mm. then the church sits and thinks about it and is like, is this the faith we were given? And Mm. the answer is no, but now the heretics have invented all this language. So we have to create something to counteract that okay um but uh at the end of the day faith is something more than what we can comprehend it as in terms of doctrine Hmm. uh saint gregory of nazianzus once said that we need to do theology in the manner of the fishermen not in the manner Hmm. of aristotle
4: oh interesting Hmm. which is this idea that
2: go ahead that's exactly what i was going to ask it's this idea that that the True theology is communion with God in prayer and sacraments. Mm. And so the true faith of the Christian can be internalized and held by anybody, regardless of their their edu- their education and their ability to do and articulate theology academically. Mm. Mm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. Which is what another... Run- guy- oh, go ahead
2: which is another reason we don't like this idea of the development of doctrine because hmm. it's ridiculous to us to assert that someone as holy and as connected to God as the apostle Paul or the, the theotokos the virgin mary right did not uh, did not understand something that we later figured out with our books and with our thinking and with our words right? That to mm. apprehend, to understand God is something deeper mm. than, um, what we might write down of our
0: own. Right. It kind of reminds me of like, where it says like knowledge puff ups, but lo- love edifies in a sense where it's right. like you can know a lot of things, but that doesn't mean you know God, you can know a lot of things about theology, but you haven't experienced the presence mm-hmm. of God, perhaps. Um, for, people who believe like who are following the orthodox tradition what do you guys believe about yeah you know, like the holy spirit uh healings miracles stuff like that maybe speaking in tongues and like that. yeah whole yeah absolutely
2: so um the holy spirit uh the lord the giver of life uh we mm. love we love him very much <laughs> um so the the idea of i guess this is a question about like the care kind of what are the connections to maybe like Protestant charismatic movements in terms of Mm -hmm. spiritual Mm -hmm. gifts. And this is a tradition that definitely persists um, throughout all of um, the Orthodox faith down to the present day. We have Mm. stories of our saints and the miracles they've performed and Mm. the healings they've been able to do. Uh, St. Nectarios of Agena, was known to be able to um, give, restore walking to the lame hmm. um, at more than one time. And he was fairly recent, 19th century. And there's more than one time he's been testified to have um, restored someone's ability to walk. And a movie actually just came out oh. about him. There's oh, yeah. other wonder workers oh, yeah. in our tradition. Uh, St. John Maximovich, who was a... Uh, renowned as a healer and also just had sort of like from people <laughs> I've read who have spoken to the man, just sort of had this ability to like know that things were going to happen like well the orphanage hmm. is running out of grain oh don't worry someone's already on the way with wow. you know a donation mm-hmm. so we'll be fine um so we do we definitely have this idea of gifts of the holy spirit um in, in that are very ch- miraculous the yeah. i think the difference for us is that that's not something the holy spirit is granted to you upon your baptism and chrismation hmm. right you are indwelt yeah. and, a, and a child of god uh and the holy spirit is with you from that moment hmm. but the christian life is a struggle to it, it you know let jesus take the wheel or let the holy spirit take the Mm -hmm. wheel and so there is a need to pursue sanctification Mm -hmm. for that to really start shining through a person and so Mm -hmm. we don't like this idea of your which we you know in some i know this isn't even all charismatics but this idea that like you have to speak in tongues right to like Validate as right to to like validate your Christian experience. There's this idea that um you know it's not the ability to work miracles is not something we earn through Mm. works, Mm -hmm. but to reduce ourselves and let Christ increase is still Mm. something we must struggle for. Mm. Beautifully said, and so there's a there's a tension in orthodoxy. Between this idea that we don't work for or merit or earn our salvation, hmm. but we do work, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the working is necessary, even if it isn't about salvific. earning. Yeah. Well, it, it 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 see that's it is salvific because <laughs> it increases our holiness, which is part hmm. of salvation for us.
1: Hmm. hmm. Um, I think we would make the distinction, like at least um, with people I've usually talked to, and we'd say that's more part of your restoration or your sanctification, and not part of your salvation. What would you say, something like that?
2: Right. So we don't really differentiate between justification and, mm. uh, and sanctification. sanctification. Yeah. Um, for for one, because in the in the Greek <laughs> New Testament, the word. Uh, I'm being put on the spot here. I think it's Didascalia, mm-hmm. um, that is often translated justification, is mm-hmm. also translated, can be translated as righteousness, mm-hmm. right? And so, mm-hmm. to be justified in in Christ is to be made righteous, to be made into a holy one, mm-hmm. and so there's this idea that they cannot be separated or at times even distinguished. Um, Now, a lot of Protestants get really upset when I say that because they worry (laughs) about things that the first question is always, but what about assurance? Right. right. And Mm. I think that's absolutely a fair question. They're Mm. definitely in um, orthodoxy, like no one goes to hell on a technicality. Right. 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 There's not this sense that you didn't make it across the finish line. So now you're done.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. It's too late. That There's, we don't earn or work for it in that sense.
3: Mm.
2: It's, it's almost, uh, I think a better way to put it would be, it's like at being at a climbing wall. Mm. You're not going to fall if your belayer knows what he's doing, mm. but you do have to climb to the top. Mm. Right. and. It will take, it, and you get as much time and as many tries as you may need, right? Mm. And the one who perseveres to the end will be saved, like the Apostle Paul says, right? Mm. We have to run the Mm -hmm. race. And so, um, yeah, there is a tension there. Um, Mm. I also like to say, in a weird way, I find it more comforting to not have to not be given assurance that's based on something I only I can know this mm. idea that well if you know if you have faith you will be saved right mm. and you can know that in your own mind the problem is is I doubt what I know all the time <laughs> right I I doubt that you know what I don't doubt is God's perfect love and mercy and so mm. I would much rather say I don't know how he's gonna judge me but I do trust that however he judges me will be perfectly loving and merciful.
0: So with that statement, they just said, would it, could someone then say that you guys don't necessarily have assurance of faith? Cause you just said, you don't know how he's going to judge you. Or is that just more of like a.
2: It's improper in our view to stand up and say, I know what my final destination is. I know what my reward will be. Okay. Right. Because the last judgment hasn't happened yet. And Christ is very clear that we will be judged according to our works, the good and Mm -hmm. the bad. That's a direct quote. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't, uh, there's a tension there between that and all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But Mm -hmm. there's this sense that, we are not to presume upon the eternal destination of any person, including ourselves. Hmm. We are to presume on God's infinite righteousness, mercy, justice, and love. Hmm. And ultimately, I find that more comforting because... I am finite and small and scared and, <laughs> you know, adrift in a, a dangerous world. But hmm. God is someone who is beyond all of that.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Cool. Ethan, do you have any more questions about that? Or I have a, a different question. I'm move on.
0: Uh, we can move on to the next question.
1: Yeah. Uh, going back a little bit, to when we're talking about traditions and doctrines um let's say someone was going to believe in uh the perpetual perpetual virginity of mary right um and because they're a catholic you have to believe that because you're catholic right yeah. um does the orthodox church have versions of that not necessarily for that doctrine but like right. the orthodox church oh. has this doctrine you must believe it in order to be in a non salvific doctrine you must believe it in order yeah. to be Orthodox.
2: There's there's no inquisition. Right. Uh, There's one of my favorite sayings is you're allowed to be orthodox and to be wrong. And particularly people will come to me and ask me, well, what about, um, you know, like, what if I don't believe in the the bodily assumption of the Virgin Mary? right Right? which is something we believe because catholics leave it open whether she died or not in the orthodox Mm. like we're like no she definitely died (laughs) right (laughs) that happened but then according to our tradition her her body was assumed later Mm. um because thomas couldn't be there at the time and then came later and Mm. her body was gone because he was always late for everything right um (laughs)
0: That's where but, our Christian tradition got um, yeah. the, in the habit of never being on time for things. Y- exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, Dang it, Thomas. So there's this sense that like, well, you're, you're allowed to have doubts or hmm. struggle with some of the things the church teaches, but the, that, that hmm. doesn't mean the church doesn't teach them. Right. And um, there are a lot of the, in terms of if there's a list of what you have to believe Mm. there's and this is actually a latin phrase but it's a phrase called uh lex orandi, lex uh, credendi which is the law of what is prayed is the law of what is believed mm. and so you need to be able to pray the services of the church sincerely and there mm. there is doctrine in that um mm. the big thing if there is one thing that i can point to and say Every single part of this must be believed without question. It's the Nicene Creed, right? Awesome. Which we actually call the symbol of the faith, hmm. right? That is, and I, I say to non-orthodox Christians uh, when it comes to like unity and stuff hmm. like that. Well, if you if you adhere to the Nicene Creed, you're 85 percent of the way there. You have yeah. a B plus. <laughs> like as far as we're concerned, because yeah. the Nicene Creed over the course of two councils was constructed to combat these really dangerous mm. corruptions of the faith and things that persist in some groups to these uh, to this day. yeah. and so that's a very important thing to us. Uh, when it comes to the perpetual virginity, that's something that's said in our services and our uh, a lot of our hymns, um, mm. the Holy Immaculate, uh, ever virgin mary um
0: what does perpe- perpetual virginity mean
2: so that means that the theotokos the virgin mary remained a virgin after giving birth to christ
0: mm-hmm. oh what do you guys do with james being jesus's brother then that's a good question
2: um so actually there's a lot of great writing about this not only from our guys but also is uh some of the early protestant reformers it's very mm-hmm. late in Christian history that the perpetual virginity stops being believed in. Okay. Um, and in fact, the first generation of Protestant reformers even defended it um, to some level. So for starters, um, Greek and Hebrew are play it a little looser with familial terms hmm. than maybe English does. And hmm. so mm-hmm. it is generally believed that the brothers of the brothers and sisters of Christ were Joseph's from a previous marriage. Hmm. Oh um, interesting. And one of the things that's pointed to for this is when Christ is dying on the cross, he puts John in charge of taking care of his mother.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Which he wouldn't have had to do if his mother had if other Joseph children or oh, if Joseph yeah, that's a good was point, there. They had a So the, the idea is culture. then Joseph's died at that point and his children wow. feel no they have no obligation to care for Mary because um Right. So and there's more to it than that. And it's a right. very ancient tradition defended uh in writing as early on as um, the third century, mm-hmm. um and quite widely and universally uh believed um until more recent times mm. um and then also the uh, so brother could mean half brother it can mean brother in law it can mm. mean um in many often it could mean cousin um yeah well can mean brother
0: in law for you guys cuz mother in law or brother in law would imply would like how that would imply either yeah right
2: right but the, in terms yeah. of like the semantic range the of mean. some of those words that yeah. that's right. a, that's right. a possibility and that's something that um i think is really great about being in the orthodox church is a lot most orthodox christians never stopped speaking greek so the hmm. bible has oh, cool. continued to be in there obviously their language has grown and changed a bit but right. it it remains in that language and so
1: Very Hmm. Mm-hmm. what is the perpetual just like not to spend a lot of time on this but right really quick for our listeners what is the significance of the perpetual virginity of mary to so, the orthodox church
2: the significance because people that what makes people back away from it is this idea that mary needs to have remained a virgin because they feel like we're saying that sex is bad otherwise mm-hmm. right and that's not what we're saying What we are saying is that throughout the scriptures, God establishes certain uh, standards of purity in order to for him to be in order to approach right and specifically Mary is the Ark of the Covenant even more than the Ark of the Covenant was right hmm. and the ark of the covenant is an object so holy so full of god's presence that people who touched it died hmm. right yeah. and now mary this person who has taken god into her womb like the the level of holiness required for that to happen right has to be out out standing. I mean, think Mm. of when God descends on Mount Sinai. He tells all of the elders of Israel they can't sleep with their wives for like a week or like three days before it happens. Mm. Only Mm. Moses is allowed to actually touch the mountain because only Moses has been spending all this time with God and developing his own righteousness and humility. Mm. And so afterwards, that She becomes so completely sanctified by the act of carrying God in her womb and giving birth to God, Mm. um, which is what we say. She is Theotokos, the one who gave birth to God, which is not to say that she existed before God, but Mm. is to say that Jesus Christ is God in the Mm. fullness of his person. And he was born of her. So by calling her that, we're actually making a statement about Christ. Interesting. Because we don't mm. want to divide his humanity from his divinity. Right. Though we do want to distinguish them. Mm. Um, right. But, but anyway, so going back, it's an important doctrine that... Um, because the tradition has handed it down, and because of this idea that she became sanctified forever as the new Ark of the Covenant, and mm. the, it, the perpetual virginity is due to the uniqueness of that
0: role that she took.
1: Very interesting. Cool, mm-hmm. Ethan. you have any questions on that?
0: Um, I was. I had never heard of the idea of her being the like a, a type of an ark of the covenant but i understand how that um can be thought of
1: the typology is very similar
0: yeah, yeah the typology like you know your house uh, like the, t- the ark house god house like the presence but is the presence different than god himself maybe because right he right Moses, there's, there's on, a whole rabbit presence.
2: hole we can go down you know, right yeah to,
0: with, <laughs> but um... yeah it's a it's a really neat uh insight that i, I never looked at before hmm. um but yeah, I just I don't know if there's. I understand why people believe that she's a perpetual virgin. I just wouldn't say that I necessarily am there off the bat. Obviously, in like five minutes, but um, right, right, you just heard of this yeah, idea. Yeah. It's yeah, um, definitely like good point with the um whole patriarch, the whole like patriarchal culture, and like the widows not wouldn't have anyone to take care of them. So if Jesus delegates someone, it's like oh, that's kind of a lot about like. Just knowing the culture opens up this whole door to yeah,
2: what our um, and is. this is this is also actually uh, in our icons, uh, which we have lots of icons um, <laughs> of the flight into Egypt. You always we always have a little James in the background tending oh, to the nice. donkey. That's um, mm-hmm. which uh, is is again just part of that how that tradition persists um, mm-hmm. cool. in our faith. So,
0: cool. Yeah. So, um. Uh, maybe we should have asked this at the beginning of the podcast, but in brief, what was your transition from Protestantism yeah. into uh, Orthodoxy?
1: That's exactly what I want to
0: ask.
2: Yeah, so um, I was raised uh, Dutch Reformed, uh, hmm. Christian Reformed Church in North America, and um, if you have any listeners in the Grand Rapids area, I wonder if any will recognize me, but um <laughs> so we do so oh great wonderful (laughs) um so i was raised in that uh environment and i was raised in a very theology was the family business my grandpa Mm. was a reformed minister his father was a reformed minister Mm. uh lots of my dad liked to thought thought he broke the cycle until I came to him one day. And I was like, I think God wants me to go to seminary dad. And he was like, no, Um, right. I like to say I I did my undergrad in art history and then I went to seminary. So I like to say, I really majored in disappointing my father and (laughs) his dreams of me buying him nice things in his retirement. Um,
0: Just start a mega church. You'll be fine.
2: Yeah. So (laughs) Uh, I started seminary. Actually, I was still reformed. I went to Calvin theological for a year and Mm. the church I had grown up in was very high church. You can say, right. Robes, stoles, uh, Mm. music sacramental Mm. in a very real way. The Lord's Mm. supper was a big deal for us. Mm. And when I started seminary, I was moved to a, um, a church that I feel was very different and I don't want to talk bad about this particular church and I don't want to, I, I don't want to, you know, make, make it seem like like it, it just wasn't a place that was feeding me spiritually in the way mm-hmm. that I was used to feeding me spiritually. Right. And, uh, even at that early time I had already encountered orthodoxy through my study of art history. I had gone down rabbit holes, exploring that whole tradition. Um, and so to get my sort of liturgical fix, uh, because i had to be in church at that church on sunday because i was a seminarian i would sneak off to the local orthodox church for their saturday night vespers that's funny um which was the one service a week that i could get to that it's very liturgical it's really Mm. you just sit there and a lot of psalms are chanted and they wave the incense around and do some blessings then everyone goes home and it's 40 minutes and it's very meditative and I loved it. And then I started talking and I was I, I'd always been interested in an in ecumenical, you know, Christian dialogue. And so I started mm. talking with the priest and went to classes and then um, ended up bumping into my cousin at one point who was like, well, I've been going to this Antiochian Orthodox Church. And I'm like, no way. I've been doing <laughs> that. But we can't <laughs> tell anybody because oh, our whole funny. family is calvinists they're gonna right. think we're idol worshipers man <laughs> right like so, a lot of things and then like I, I i i met another priest who wanted to meet me because like my mom worked at the bank and was mm-hmm. telling me about this orthodox priest a lot of things just sort of converged on my life mm-hmm. in a very uh peculiar and distinctive way that uh at we we're going home from dinner with my cousin and his family one night. And I just said to my wife, I was like, we've got to, we've, we've, we've got to become Orthodox. And she was like, absolutely. Um, How's that process
1: with your wife? She,
2: she's, she's much holier and more intuitive than I am. (laughs) She got there and was like, this is it. This is how this is the throne room that God needs to be worshiped in for her. This (laughs) was, (laughs) for her our churches are very decorated and there's a lot of Mm. bells and whistles but for her that that was a moment uh, whereas me i was like so ingrained in calvinism like i don't know how i feel about the pictures
3: she was like (laughs) this
2: is how we worship our king right Mm. we like i love that we we actually bow in the orthodox church right I love think that. of i i and i now i think back and i say how many times growing up protestant did i read verses about bowing before god in prayer hmm. and never once did it
4: yeah
2: right and so and, and that's sort of the the chronology of it obviously in my own hmm. interior life there was a lot of wrestling with doctrines i had been taught to reject there was a lot of uh thinking about the implications for my career um the implications for where I was going to go to seminary instead because I didn't want to give up my education Mm -hmm. um and all of those have more or less uh shaken out for uh the good of those who love him uh myself Mm. and my wife (laughs) um and it's it's not that it hasn't been a struggle but also it's important, I think, to understand that conversion isn't just a matter of being convinced Mm. of the doctrines. Mm, Of course. It's not like someone and and I don't like to think that any, that it should come down to that for anyone, because we're all doomed if our one guide for truth and our only measure of truth is someone being able to convince me of something, Mm. right? Because There are smart people out there and people far smarter than me who remain Protestant or Mm. are Catholic or are Muslims or Buddhists for that matter. I'm not going to sit on the, put myself on the top of the mountain and say, I figured it all out. Mm -hmm. Um, There needs to be an encounter with God, an encounter with God's love and with his spirit. And definitely a, a melting of the heart, and for me that occurred in such a visceral way wow. in the Orthodox Church, and awesome. I can't imagine being anywhere else. And mm. it was it was such a change in my um, in my heart that I I almost don't remember being anything else. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think back to le- to when I was in high school or early in college in West Michigan, I'm like, I can't believe some of the stuff I believed or like <laughs> how I thought um, about faith. It's, it's a hmm. very, it, it's a total switching of the mindset. Yeah. And so.
0: Yeah. Well, is what was the, or like maybe the two biggest changes from become going from Calvinism to Orthodoxy like theologically in mindset, like, oh my gosh.
2: The two biggest things are first and foremost, the whole theory and model of Christ's atonement is Hmm. completely different. Hmm. So Calvinism, and this is, uh, I'm going to give Calvinist listeners, don't don't message me and yell at me about, I know this is Uh. a simplistic statement of it. We have quite a few, Um, but that's
1: okay. But we make fun of it all the time.
2: I know. I went to Calvin. I understand. But yeah. <laughs> the Calvinist view of penal substitutionary atonement is hmm. God has to punish someone for sin. Mm-hmm. So he punishes Christ. Hmm. And that's something that you hear a lot in evangelical, that's sort of spread throughout all evangelical rhetoric right. in right. Um, the, the United States especially. And that is something that in the history of theology is developed quite late. Mm -hmm. Um, You have one or two, if you really go and quote mine, the early church fathers, Mm -hmm. you can find a few statements here or there that allude to something like that, but Mm -hmm. it's not until... John Calvin, actually, when someone sits down and writes a systematic exposition of this is how we are saved. Hmm. And we even reject a slightly or tend to reject a slightly toned down version of that that the Catholics hold to, which is Anselm's model of Hmm. substitution, this idea that Christ paid a debt of honor to God, to his father, that we could not pay. Hmm. And we don't, th- th- this model of the atonement is, first of all, was not the primary model of the atonement in the early church. Um, and if people are interested in reading on this, highly recommend uh, On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. And if you're afraid of it, the uh, introduction is published, by, is written by C.S. Lewis. Wow. So awesome. there's, there's the, uh, to ease the, the evangelicals yeah. in.
1: Um, by, who's it by again?
2: uh saint athanasius and uh the one by saint vladimir seminary press uh translated Mm -hmm. by father john bear is very good and quite affordable as far as ancient church writings go Hmm. um so anyway so this idea we don't like the idea some of these models because first of all we don't like to say that god needs for anything Mm -hmm. god is not subject to a higher law that determines he must do something right and furthermore if you read the old testament god forgives people for the Mm -hmm. sake of their repentance right Mm -hmm. god says to david the lord or nathan through says to david the lord has taken your sin away from you when he repents and to the extent that sin is a transgression against god's law that is, that is easy for God to forgive, but the problem is deeper than that in our mind. The problem ultimately is what we call ancestral sin or corruption and, and death mm. that in our theology, you could theoretically go your whole life, never sin. You would still die. Mm. That's a problem, yeah. right? And so for Hmm. us, Christ pours out his blood not to appease the wrath of his father, which we feel divides the Trinity against itself, but pours out his blood, us, Hmm. because we lost eternal life. And he, as the fountain of life, pours his life into us to restore us. And that is the primary in our mind, um, way the atonement works. And for us, that's makes the resurrection the most important thing. So that this combines with Christ on the cross, pours out his blood for the life of the world. He submits to death and then on Pascha, on Passover, he defeats death because death cannot hold life himself in chains. Mm-hmm. And um, the early fathers write about this a lot. It's variously referred to as Christus Victor or the fish hook theory of the atonement um, to give some people to give people some idea of what to look up. Um, so that that's such a huge paradigm shift. And one of the things that blew my mind, I was listening to a podcast on ancient faith radio when I was still struggling with this idea and someone brought up well but didn't christ die for us like an animal sacrifice right and in the old testament and the priest said but christ didn't die on the day of atonement Hmm. and the animal on which the sins of the people were placed on the day of the atonement in the old testament was was not killed it was sent off into the wilderness to die in the desert christ dies on passover and the passover yeah. lambs die at a moment that frees god's people from slavery.
1: Yeah. Very interesting.
2: Right? and protects them from the wrath that is being poured out against those who are not god's people. It is the passover lamb does not atone for the sins of the israelites and so for christ to be our passover lamb is that that blew my mind when i heard that so that's my pitch for orthodox theory of the atonement (laughs) um i know i but uh, i've already warned obviously there's more to this than being able to convince people right uh, of the other big switch for me was uh all kind of wrapped up in icons that like having pictures of Jesus at all, like I was raised in a household where that was not okay.
0: Do they look at that as idolatry? Calvinists do,
1: especially.
2: Right.
1: Um, Is that's a pretty big division we... in the early church too, right? Hmm? Wasn't that a pretty big division in the early church as well?
2: There was not, it kind of more of like the middle church. There was a big iconoclast mm. controversy in the 700s. Right, right. I want to say that caused a big division um yeah but yeah so the icons in general um were kind of kind of freaked me out and then the idea of icons of saints that you know aren't even in the bible i was i was like uh, it was an (laughs) affront to all of my sensibilities um and it it can be very weird because you walk into an Orthodox church, you're going to see all these people running up and kissing these pictures of Jesus and all the saints and bowing to them and me freaking out and being like, they're worshiping, they're doing all this. And just, it took a lot of, in a very real way, deprogramming to realize, mm-hmm. well, but bowing isn't, well, you can bow in worship, but bowing itself isn't worship. People bow to each mm-hmm. other. People bow, on stage people in many cultures right like japan exists (laughs) and never once was i accused for idolatry when i was taking a karate class when i was in grade school right and so there's this um idea that you know our faith needs to be physically it's not just something we think it's something we do and Mm -hmm then there and then with icons especially it's this idea that well i have a picture of my grandparents right here on the shelf right right and i i have no delusions about my my grandpa mike is not in that picture he is right. not watching me through the eyes of that picture and right. that's an important distinction to make because that's how pagans thought idols worked Mm, that you would build a body for the god that their spirit would inhabit Mm. and use as an avatar for communication
0: yeah something about just thinking about that just because we thought about the ark of the covenant earlier it's kind of like if you think like this is not a bible nerd like tangent i'm gonna go off Mm -hmm. on that but it's like if that's what pagan cultures thought imagine the disappointment when they build these houses and nothing ever happens and the Israelites have this ark, and things happen all the time yeah. and all the pagans well, are like, why is it working? So, for them oh, God, I, I, I'm
2: going to have to, I'm going to have to get to that. But, yeah. um, so, so that was a big shift is shift to, um, veneration of the saints, which is a word we use to distinguish from worship hmm. for us. Hmm. Okay. Worship means sacraments and sharing in a meal with God, just like it did in the old Testament. Hmm. Interesting, Right that uh, the Old Testament, the sacrifices would be eaten by the people.
4: Hmm. Yeah.
2: Right. So what's, what's a little weird is, and there's a great, I, I'm going to plug a lot of podcasts on ancient faith radio today, but there's a great yeah. one called Lord of Spirits and the Orthodox would actually contend with that assertion you just made that nothing ever happened in those pagan temples. Hmm. Um, there are spiritual forces in the world and for sure, one of the causes. So actually, there's in the Old Testament scriptures. There's several accounts of different falls of the angels. There's like four, mm. five, four. Yeah, half, yeah, definitely. Right, definitely. and so one of them is that these angels who have been set to guard over the nations have started ex- accepting worship in God's place. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so, yeah. um, and throughout the Old Testament. Testament, it, 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 the, the, the word Elohim is used for beings other than God, just a general term for spirit as well. And when actually the Witch of Endor summons the spirit of Samuel, in the Hebrew there she she says, "I see a God coming out of the earth." Mm. She's talking mm. about Samuel. Or yeah. it, there's a psalm where God says to the rebellion Elias Angels, though you be gods, you will die like men. Mm. Um, but anyway, that was a tangent. Everyone should listen oh, to totally Lord of Spirits because it's really good. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: What is that podcast uh, that it's, you were plugging?
2: So oh. it's through Ancient Faith Radio. It's called Lord of Spirits. Mm. Um, it's run by Father Andrew Stephen Damick, who is mm. kind of the head of our uh, English... Ancient Faith Radio and Ministries are our English language ministry wing. Mm. And um evangelism and all of it so he mm. he's sort of the head of that and then father stephen DeYoung, who's actually also formerly reformed and has a phd in near eastern language languages mm. and biblical studies and sort of walks through the uh kind of things like angels demons uh things that because they noticed that in uh and especially on tiktok i see this all the time people will try to discredit Christianity by bringing things up in the Bible that people don't know about, mm. right? Mm. Like, and the claim that there are other gods in the Bible is a is a big and a frequent big one, one yeah. right? So this podcast was started as a, we're gonna talk about it because we haven't been hiding it from you. You just never asked and weren't keen right. on learning Ugaritic. Right. So <laughs> we didn't bother, <laughs> right? But it's there. And if you wanna know, we'll tell you yeah um so there's a lot of good podcasts on that um on ancient faith ministries i also really recommend whole council of god which is like verse Mm. by verse through the new testament and sort of offers the orthodox perspective on a lot of oh cool um things going on in there um Mm -hmm. (laughs) so anyway and yeah so those were the two i that was a very long-winded response for the two oh, biggest fine. shifts were yeah. the the theory of the atonement and um anything to do with the veneration of the saints but particularly mm-hmm. the icons themselves mm-hmm. um, yeah
0: why why do they look at it as an idol if it's a picture of jesus is it because we don't know what jesus looks so, like so, so you're the, making it, up an with image with
2: the with the the Calvinist line that I was always taught is God says, "Thou shalt not make an image, right?" Right of God and yeah. Christ is God, so you can't make an image of Him. Okay, it's a very one to one. That's the right. law. That's the, um, you know the that's the way it is, the so. consequences of it, right?
4: Hmm. Um,
2: For sure. Yeah. So those were those were very. Um, I would say the two biggest shifts and there's lots of little things and there's still things today that'll get mentioned in a sermon. I'll be like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, cause it's, it's 2000 years of history and mm-hmm. there's, it's an inexhaustible, you know, cup of information and, uh, right. Understanding, um, <sighs> that flows mm-hmm. from Christ. So mm-hmm. there's always something to learn.
1: I have a quick question about, um, your guys' version of atonement really fast. Um, yeah. I just didn't necessarily understand the, I I liked what you said also, by the way, Um, but I was under the impression that, and maybe I'm conflating these two things, that the Orthodox church didn't believe in original sin, Um, at least maybe different traditions of the Orthodox church, but that kind of sounded like where you were going with that.
2: That's something, a lot of things get either blown out of proportion or skewed when it comes to Mm -hmm. internet apologetics. So this is my plug to anyone listening. If you want to learn about the Orthodox Church, the place to do that is in an Orthodox Church, <laughs> not what people like me say online. And actually, I the, one of the pinned videos on my TikToks is, don't listen to me, go to orthodoxinsure.org and go listen to them, right? Yeah. But the, So the way I usually put it is that when you isolate a doctrine, the orthodox teaching of original sin is is razor thin, very close to the Western, what we would call the Augustinian doctrine of original sin. Mm-hmm. But when you start to plug all of the doctrines back into the the system that they've become, they the gap widens and it widens between everything. So mm-hmm. if we compare like individual teaching about original sin, it's very close. Mm-hmm. But then it gets wider the more doctrines we start to plug into the system of thought and widens it. So, yeah, and, and that's always just to say that there's – the deeper you dive into a topic, the more nuances and mm-hmm. unexplored corners of things you're going to find. So it's very right. hard to say, like, well, the West believes in original sin and We don't – like, it's, it's right. much more complicated and nuanced than that.
1: Hmm very interesting cool so i think kind of coming to the end of our show a little bit or at least the, the last half we'd love to talk a little bit about um unity between the body one thing that i've loved that TikTok has done um not that there didn't used to be a lot of content on all of these subjects before and that you could mm-hmm. go out and, and research and look up like what someone who's protestant believes or catholic or orthodox but what tiktok has done is made it so much easier to have online conversations and be exposed to different traditions and belief and it's mm-hmm. i think led to a lot of people converting in different directions which I think is very interesting but also leading to a lot of people just understanding and have a knowledge having a knowledge of what other traditions believe because i think even though this is a very kind of cult-like mindset, I think a lot of people have this where like, if you don't believe my tradition of Christianity, like, are you really going to heaven? I'm not sure. Cause I don't really understand like what you believe kind of a thing. Yeah. At least that's for like a lot of Protestants. But I think that narrative or that mindset is changing a lot as a lot of people are becoming more informed on a lot of the different topics of belief between the different traditions. Um, what do you think, is happening in that evolution of that space? Is it leading towards more unity? Is there anything we can do to yeah, lead towards more so unity? That kind the, of thing. The,
2: the Orthodox sort of hold, uh, again, two things in tension, which is on one hand, like we're not budging from our faith. Um, yeah. we, we do have very real and very um, explicit claims to a unique authority that we ground in the history of our church Mm, right that um comes with the idea of apostolic succession uh, and all of that and so but at the same time we do have a saying uh, along the lines of we know where the church is but not where it is not Mm. um and along with that we have Many of our our greatest saints and theologians have basically said. Uh, someone once approached, um I forget which one, because all of the all of the Greek monks just sort of dance back and forth in my mind. But <laughs> someone someone approached one of a monastic elder and said, "I'm worried about the heterodox. I'm worried about the non-orthodox mm. Christians." Right. And the elder basically said, "Why would you worry about them? They have a Savior who loves them and desires that every human being will be saved." Mm-hmm they'll be fine you worry about you right that's beautiful and there is a greater burden that comes with believing that you you are responsible now for something that's been revealed to your heart and which means we're pretty severe about leaving orthodoxy Mm. but not about those who are just outside of it um on the other Mm. hand the orthodox far more so than the roman catholic church has always been willing to engage in ecumenical dialogue we Mm were uh participants in the world council of churches from the founding Mm. of that movement in the 1950s Mm. um my own saint saint Tikhon of moscow uh, when he was archbishop of north america um was very close with a number of episcopalian bishops Mm. um and wrote letters back and forth and explored this idea so especially with other what we might call apostolic churches Hmm. uh the roman catholics the anglicans the methodists Hmm. that's that's a very uh the approach to unity is very straightforward we have bishops you have bishops put them all in a room we'll figure something out (laughs) right (laughs) um with the non-denominational movement and hmm. a smaller evangelical denominations and such, it's much more difficult. One thing we hmm. like to say is that we're not non-denominational. We're pre-denominational, hmm. <laughs> right? Antioch hmm. was there and then denominations happened later. <laughs> um, in terms of yeah. unity, that that's not to say that we don't believe that other people aren't Christians. Hmm. Um And I said earlier, a big movement towards unity that, and this is my personal opinion, but one I find that is shared by many. The biggest battle right now is the integrity of what's proclaimed in the Nicene Creed. Yeah. Right? That means Mm -hmm. educating people, understanding what the Trinity is. What's very Mm nerve-wracking to me is you look at some of the surveys, especially in North America, among evangelicals, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of ancient doctrines that have slipped through the cracks that the ortho like that every orthodox christian knows Mm -hmm. because we say it all the time in our services we sing it we and so and this has to do with the nature of christ being fully human and fully divine being Mm -hmm. being part of the trinity but also simple things like like the idea in the united states that you die and your spirit goes to heaven and that's it
4: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Which for us is like, no, Nicene Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Mm -hmm. I believe I will return in this body. (laughs) Right? That dying and going to heaven is not the point. The restoration of the world is the point. And so... The Nicene Creed really gets you like 85% of the way there, and we're far yeah. more open to dialogue with groups. Even a lot of my greatest friends on TikTok are uh, like Nerdy Priest. She is so not an Orthodox Christian, like like <laughs> LGBTQ-affirming, progressive, all of that. But I engage with dialogue, and I feel much closer to her than I do in a lot of these more nebulous groups because I know. That every single Sunday, she goes up to that altar and professes the ancient faith in the Nicene Creed, Hmm. and then says the same Hmm. words celebrating the Lord's Supper that we say at my church, Lift up that we have going back to the second century. Lift up Hmm. your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. So liturgical, which brings me to the next point, which is liturgical unity is a very big thing for Hmm. us. The idea that what is prayed is what is believed. Interesting. And so the use of these forms of prayer uh the creed the lord's prayer um are are for us very important and so a lot of stuff gets moved out of the way if we can just sign off on certain things like the creed Hmm. and um when i walk into a non-denominational church i don't know what's going to be said yeah Right. I don't know that that, there might be a statement. There might be a totally novel and new statement of faith on the website. Mm -hmm. Right. But I don't. And that for us is why history and tradition is really important is it helps us recognize each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Even if there's disagreement. Right. We like recognizes like. Um, I would say there's. So yeah, so there's, there's definitely room for cooperation. There is, I, there is not a sense that, oh, in 50 or even a hundred years, we can have a big meeting and we'll work everything out and all recognize Uh, each other as right or something. There is a sense, I think that We recognize the potential to grow back together. Schisms Mm. don't happen overnight. The church doesn't divide overnight. It Mm -hmm. it grows apart in an estrangement Mm. over time. And so Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest points in unity is... being conscious of our need to grow back together. And that means living among each other and loving each other. And um, at some points, even agreeing not to proselytize each other anymore, Um, (laughs) which is if if you, I don't know if you guys have seen my video, we get very upset when Protestants do mission work in like Egypt, because there's a lot of Orthodox Christians in Egypt who are suffering (laughs) right and we I don't didn't see a
1: video on that yeah
2: yeah so but so anyway so there's the concrete steps that have to be taken for unity are mm. a personal striving towards love towards recognition yeah. and towards humility it's not for me to walk it's not my place to walk into a non-denominational church and do my own version of bible thumping and explain why they're wrong about everything it's my purpose mm. to in humility validate everything I believe
4: Mm
2: -hmm. um, is right. While, while sticking to my guns and matters, I think are important if I'm pressed on them.
1: Yeah. But that's awesome. Yeah. So I think that was, that was mostly what I was going towards. Um, I, when I say unity, I don't mean like we all need to become the same thing again, necessarily. Although mm -hmm. I'm sure every leader of every denomination or uh, tradition would want that to happen. Right. But that's that mutual respect and even understanding yeah. to gain that respect i think is is part of the unity and even living together and not proselytizing yeah. each other and stuff like that i think that is beautiful that's awesome and when you're talking about um like not really knowing if non-denominational people or a lot of them would even uh, be able to affirm the Nicene Creed I think that's like totally accurate I think it's due not to a disagreement in the creed but just an unawareness of what people believe. You know what I I mean?
2: I I think you're absolutely right. Like, I'm not saying that everyone who doesn't know about it denies the Trinity, right? But it's frustrating that we have this shorthand to identify Mm. each other Mm. and that people are forgetting what these were. Like, people are like, well, no creed but the Bible. Well, like, Mm. okay, I understand. No creed but the Bible is a creed, (laughs) Uh, first of all. Um, But second of all, like... (laughs) But the Bible's really long and people disagree about it. So for yeah. the sake of communication, we devised some really cool, short little documents right. that um, help us work out. And yeah, especially when it comes, it's such a hard question to answer because hmm. when an Anglican or a Roman Catholic asked me that question, I'm like, absolutely, hmm. we want unity again. We got to keep having our bishops meet and figure out how to be one church again. Right. right but when a lot of the evangelical mindset is just so mm. different from that that yeah. um and, and in that sense we do it we do proselytize among groups more among groups we perceive as further from ourselves so mm. there is outreach to try to convince evangelicals to become I'm orthodox sure. yeah. or uh, <laughs> and, and stuff like that um There have also been noted instances, and this might be fun to finish on for anyone who wants to look up this story, but um, Campus Crusade was a big evangelical movement uh, Mm. back in the day, and there was a particular minister among Campus Crusade, uh, Peter Gilquist, who Mm. um, started digging into the early church history, became convicted of orthodoxy, approached the church of antioch and said i want to be i've got thousands of people here now with me and we all want to be orthodox we formed our own little orthodox church and they were received back into communion and i've had a lot of conversations with people who had similar experiences uh father gilquist has since passed his son is now a priest in indiana um Hmm. there is a sense i think where a lot of things changed when I became Orthodox. I think a lot of, a lot of other things about my faith, re- things of real substance did not change and are mm-hmm. compatible. Um, mm-hmm. And that's recognized a lot in people who have had those conversion experiences or mm-hmm. in scholars like uh, uh, Dr. Bradley Nassif, who's at a school in Chicago, who actually was born Orthodox kind of did the whole Billy Graham thing and then came Hmm. back and has written a pretty good essay on the compatibility of um, evangelicalism and orthodoxy. Interesting. Um, Hmm. Which is where Zondervan published it in a a little compendium.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Love Zondervan. I think just from my own perspective, and of course it's going to be flawed, um, but from my own perspective, I think evangelical theology is trending much much more towards what um orthodox theology is now mm-hmm. not that it's close to the same but in every way that i know about orthodox theology in all of my friends in a lot of the lectures i listen to it seems like a lot of the theology is changing and gearing more towards a lot of what the, uh the eastern orthodox church believes so I think is very very interesting that that's happening, yeah. and you're seeing a lot of people convert, but you're also seeing a lot of just Protestants change their theology to be mm-hmm. a, a much more orthodox. And I,
2: I part of it it goes back to how I think you began, you guys began the show which is you know orthodox what's that especially in like the western english speaking world and Hmm. 100 200 years ago that it was true and the reverse was true for the orthodox people would Hmm. be like well what about the protestants and like some like i'm a priest in rural russia man i don't know Hmm. what a Protestant. i've never heard of the word Right? (laughs) right like right um and so this awareness even begins to create that trend and especially yeah i think um in a lot of really different areas of theology and of faith Mm. and of practice, we've seen um, Western theology begin to trend East as this communication Mm. opens a treasure trove of ideas uh, that the West hadn't been exposed to in so long. And in the reverse, I will say, we, we will stick to our own theology, but we are wholly willing to take on cool practices and the work of Western Christians. Mm-hmm. I've got a rosary right here. Mm-hmm. All the prayers on the rosary are things that Orthodox Christians say, but the rosary was not a practice of ours until we adopted it from the Catholics. Cause we were like, yeah. Hey, that's cool. Yeah. Um, Man, or with where, or with like Bible translation, so much good has come from the work of faithful Protestants to translate the Bible into languages and that's always an ideal that the orthodox shared the translation mm. of the bible into the spoken language of the people and so when we got to north america uh we were like well people always ask me is there an orthodox translation of the bible well no <laughs> because it was already done for us right. and in fact not only that it was a smorgasbord we had our pick And there are Orthodox footnotes to explain the Orthodox interpretation of the scriptures. Hmm. That's a different thing. So yeah, there's unity, especially in, I think a lot of um, good that uh, has been worked in the West that Orthodoxy is discovering uh, things like Bible translate, pastoral ministry and Hmm. ideas of chaplaincy that are, that Hmm. I've learned a lot about since coming to seminary that were pioneered by western clergy mm-hmm. um so that's
1: awesome yeah i think cool.
2: a lot of
0: unity is can be had through like you were getting at earlier this idea of just humble like hey i don't know everything but i know what i know and i can probably learn something from you mm-hmm. right and that idea of just being very open to have conversations like this right like if we never had you on to talk about orthodoxy, we might not know what orthodoxy is and might then unknowingly pass a judgment on it. You know, like Mm -hmm. orthodoxy is this old tradition that people don't do anymore. It's, we know better now, but it's like, well, we probably have something to learn from really serious tradition. And so I think a lot of it also has uh, come down to open conversations, which the age of technology we live in um, presents us with. Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, anybody want to say anything else before we end? I know we have one last question that then we usually talk about, but anything else? All right. I'm nervous now. What's the question
2: you ask everybody?
1: Well, we (laughs) forgot last time, the first time we ever forgot the last episode we did, but we're not this time. Okay. So you are locked in a gladiator ring. Okay. And there is a predatory animal in that ring that wants to kill you. The thing that you get to decide is what is the largest predatory animal that you think that you could take down in a fight to the death and you get to choose one melee weapon that isn't very modern so you can't choose a chainsaw or something but just like a kind of a traditional melee weapon what do you think is the biggest predatory animal you could face in that gladi- gladiator right, arena. So Realistic before, ones before, too, so not I'll,
2: I'll entertain the question, but first I gotta I gotta mention in the words of Saint Ignatius of Antioch, if I'm in the arena for being a Christian, let the lions <laughs> eat me, man. Yeah, I'll become truly human. Yeah. Uh which he wrote as he was being marched to his death in the right the the ring. But anyway, wow. um oh goodness.
1: For example, Ethan always says A dagger and a hyena. And we've had some people say uh, like spears and bears. I usually say. So,
2: spear is definitely it because the spear is designed for someone who doesn't know how to use melee weapons to be able to be fairly competent with right away. And it lets me keep my distance. Um, (laughs) And spear hunting bears is still legal in Canada, where my family is from. And it happens. Very rarely. And then someone's like, I'm going to do it. And it's like, fine, you're allowed to, but it's dumb. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> spear, it's some kind of predatory animal. I'm not sure I want to mess around with any big cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be willing, I, I think either one of your smaller species of bears. <laughs>
1: wow. Like I a big I'd, cat.
2: Hmm. But not a big cat. No, I don't want to I don't want to mess around with big cats. They're okay. they're, they're terrifying. terrifying and they had like a bear can't jump that far. <laughs> right. They, they, you know, cats Bears have just crazy leaping ability. I'm not sure I'm ready for it. so a bear. Um, but really, if we want to say comfort level, uh, probably mm. a larger wolf. Hmm. Like like a like a big like northern Canadian you know gray. Oh, wolf I or... think
0: wolves are scarier than big cats.
1: Oh, me too, for sure. That's I, mean, I think too, it's because
0: of the amount of Discovery Channel I've watched. They usually center more on cats than they do wolves, so I just don't know a lot about them. But Man.
2: yeah, no, I, I tigers absolutely terrify me. I yeah. and I, I I love animals, and I look forward to a day where creation is restored enough or i am holy oh, enough too. to to yeah just chill with them but for yeah. the time right. being um i mean i think like yeah. cats I, swipe, I guess though, i guess like, the cop-out answer would be i'd be more than willing to fight an orca in the gladiator <laughs> i think i would have yes. a distinct advantage <laughs>
1: yes i um, think so um,
2: but no i'm Especially gonna the final spear. answer is i'm gonna go spear and i'm fighting a wolf
1: cool good answer right on. that's a great You're a brave man yeah. yeah. Well, t we've had a great time talking to you. I've really enjoyed it myself. I'm sure Ethan has as well. If you ever want to come Likewise. back on, you're definitely welcome to come on. Yeah. Let, let me know if you guys more. ever
2: want to talk again or you need more content or there's uh, y- y- there's other questions you have about Orthodoxy or Christian history yeah. in general, which I've studied a lot too much oh yeah
1: yeah um, we love christian history and we've done a couple episodes on it but i'm sure we'd love to do something more yeah. in the future there's so much you can go over with yeah. all of christian mm-hmm. history we can always have more episodes on that yeah. that's awesome maybe cool. we'll have so everybody you and like, matt on I was well, saying, that we'll would have be you fun i'd we'll, love to
2: do a podcast you guys with with talk we, about... used, we used to do some live streams on twitch together with a group of other guys wow that's awesome, so, um, oh, that's awesome. I'd, I'd love to be on with matt again so that would be great
1: cool Cool. So for everybody listening, thank you so much. You can check us out pretty much everywhere. Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, all those places. Hope you have a great day. You enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you again next week.